Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. Our guest today is Professor Wendy Moyle. Wendy is Program Director, Healthcare Practice and Survivorship Program in the Menzies Health Institute, Queensland's at Griffith University in Brisbane. She is also Professor of Nursing in the School of Nursery and Midwifery, Griffith University. Did I say that right, Wendy? Is it midwifery or midwifery? I always look at his tongue twister. Yeah, midwifery. <laughs> midwifery. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm so looking forward to this chat. So um, first up, what's the survivorship program all about? Um, it's about helping people survive chronic illness. So often chronic illness is about cancer, so cancer survivorship. So rather than dying with cancer, it's about surviving cancer. So that's awesome. one of the programs within the, within the greater program that I am director of. It's such a fascinating field and I'm sure like it affects so many people today and um, you know I've known a few cancer survivors myself so it, it's quite a complex I think it's complex I imagine you would agree that it's it's a complex field when you're dealing with these people. Absolutely. One of the groups within the program that, that I'm director of looks at uh, the use of exercise with women with ovarian cancer. So that's the way to help them survive their cancer. I've actually read a very interesting um, article that I think was just published recently, or that I just saw recently, that um, as opposed to people who aren't using exercise while they're actually going through chemotherapy and all the radiation, whatever their treatment may be, um, that people that do exercise actually do better. Absolutely. So Professor Sandy Hayes, who's in, in our program, she, her work is specifically on that, looking at the use of exercise in cancer. And certainly her research shows that um, exercise um, helps reduce those things like um, nausea, vomiting and helps them in terms of mood also. I would think it's an it's a given. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a personal trainer in my spare time way before Exaptic, and I've always exercised my whole life, and I've always maintained that I think for um, stress levels, um, depression, there's no better anecdote or antidote to it than um, actual exercise. Hmm. Apparently, it's not my area of expertise, but uh, it certainly seems to be what the people who research in this area suggest. Yeah. yeah. So your research is focused on dementia, depression and delirium. Why are you so interested in this particular field? Well, the group of uh, people in our population who are growing is older people. And these are three conditions that older people tend to um, experience. So we know that depression increases as we age. Delirium is a problem as people have chronic disease or go into um, hospital and experience um, anesthetics, etc. And dementia also increases as we age. So I'm very interested in these conditions because they're very uh, common and also they're um, conditions are so similar in terms of symptoms. So we need to be able to understand them to be able to treat them. So why do you think as we age, do we get more depressed? Like, is this just a natural correlation or is it to do with our seeming inability to do things that we took for granted, you know, moving around now, suddenly we're slowing down, we need more help from other people? 
Well, often it's related to chronic disease, also loss of partners or loss of family members. Uh, that, can, that can create depression. Um, also, maybe lack of exercise. I mean, we do know that exercise also, it, it helps us with our um, mood also. And then some of the chronic diseases also places, place us more at risk of depression. I suppose in a way, you know, like we prepared for all steps of our life, you know, as a child going to school, you prepared for that, then you go to university and you sort of prepared for that. And then you go and you get married and you sort of prepared for that. I don't think they prepare um, parents for their children. Like, I think you can never be prepared for that. But then the obvious next step is like our healthcare system you know, do we actually prepare people for getting older, like what they're going to face and, and issues that they have? Well, I think it's very difficult. I mean, I know even myself, um, exercise is difficult because I have arthritis in one of my knees. And so as we age, we have, we're at more risk of um, chronic disease. And so, you know, sometimes it makes it life more difficult. So if we're more at risk of, you know, not sleeping as much, we feel frustrated with that, we can't exercise as much, maybe we have respiratory disease or we have some other disease that can make us feel very frustrated and also can lead to depression. Yeah. So what are the stats on the dementia in Australia? Like what are we facing there? Currently in Australia, it's around about 459,000 people have dementia, and that's growing. It grow, seems to be growing every year, and it, that's around about 250 new cases per day. So it's, it's, it has grown. It's around about the second, um, so second leading cause of death, but it's the leading cause of death for women because women uh, live longer than men. So it is the leading cause. So it is, a, it is a problem that we have in society. And it is a problem because we have no cure. And what we're finding is that people are um, being diagnosed earlier. So they're having it for longer periods of time. And there is, some, while there are some treatments um, in terms of helping with memory loss, um, we do know that people, um, you know, it's very frustrating for people to have dementia and know that they're going to end up with chronic problems in terms of particularly with memory, but there are other problems they're also going to experience that they're not really looking forward to. Yeah. So our health system, how are we coping with that demand that it's been put on our system and, and are we prepared for this? Any chronic disease is going to put demands on our health system. Dementia, they suggest, is around about $15 billion a year cost in a health system. So we know that people with dementia go into a health system more readily because they also have other chronic diseases alongside their dementia. And then once they get into the um, health system, it's very difficult to get them out. So their dementia causes perhaps delirium while they're in the acute care system in particular, so they tend to spend longer in the hospital or acute care system. So it's very difficult when we have, uh, particularly we have medical staff or nursing staff who don't know how to manage people with dementia. And so this creates also additional problems. While the Australian government has put a lot of money into 
training of healthcare professionals. It's also very difficult to actually manage these people when they're in a very difficult or very busy environment and there's lots of noise and lots of things happening. And um, this makes it very challenging to manage them in an acute environment in particular. When we look at the long-term care situation, around about 60 to 90% of that population is people with dementia. Hi, hi stats. So you've got a robotics laboratory that develops and evaluates assistive technologies and social robots. So tell us about your work there. Mm. Yeah, we're very lucky here at Griffith University. Um, former Vice Chancellor at Griffith University helped us to set up this laboratory. It's a very nice laboratory. It's the only one that I know of internationally. So we're very lucky. Um, and as you say, in that laboratory, we both um, develop new technologies and we evaluate existing technologies. So we bring in consumers. So these are people with dementia, their families, carers, um, people working in the industry to actually help us develop new technologies and also develop, uh, uh, sorry, to evaluate existing technologies. We um, set up the laboratory so that we can look at those technologies in the very beginning stages. We then take them out into the existing environment where we want them to be working. We evaluate them again in that environment. We set up what's called randomized control trials, so the best practice. And then we set up guidelines for uh, helping people to be able to use those in that environment. Absolutely fascinating field. So you've been conducting one of the largest studies on companion robots, um, Para the seal, which I'm sure everyone knows about, lovely little seal. How did that all happen? Um, that happened because Para was available. Mm -hmm. The developer was saying at the time that you know, it was the, the best thing since sliced bread. He promoted it as an amazing robot very expensive, eight and a half thousand dollars. My interest was, well, did it actually work? He had done some, um, some research, which I felt was biased because it was done by him and his team. So we set up a small trial and uh, I was surprised by the very positive results from that trial. And then we uh, were lucky enough, I guess, to get a larger funding to set up the larger trial. That trial showed some very positive results of that seal. And uh, we've gone on to do further work um, from that work. We've now gone on to look at the uh, seal in terms of, is it, uh, is it effective in terms of helping people with dementia, not only in terms of their behavioral problems, but in terms of things like pain. So we've found in uh, uh, some earlier trials that we've had that it's actually been very useful in terms of helping people with dementia in terms of reducing their pain. We've also used it in terms of helping people with dementia, who, uh, not dementia, we've used it in terms of older people who have depression, who are living in long-term care. And we've also found it very effective with that population as well. So um, I guess our work continues in that area and we're, we're looking at different ways to use it and different types of robots. This robot is very, um, it's very effective, but it's very expensive. So we've also been looking at different types of uh, 
robots that might do the same sort of thing, but more cost effective because not many people can afford eight and a half thousand dollars. Yeah, I think that's, you know, when we talk about the adoption rate of robotics, this is an ongoing and continual, you know, who can afford this? You know, when you talk about um, other robots, um, you know, Pepper, for instance, great robot, but at nearly $30,000, like how, how you, this is not for every day consumption. This would be for universities or people, large corporations that can afford it, but it's not for the average man on the, on the street. So our work also looks at the cost effectiveness of a robot. And I, I, I'm particularly interested in this. So if you think about Pyro $8,500, we have a quite a number of these, but what we've actually found in our work is that they uh, are very long lasting. So we've, in terms of um, their robustness, they don't break. Uh, we've actually only ever had two who have, that have had to be repaired, and those two have been thrown across a room by a person with dementia who was very agitated. The rest of them have been handled by hundreds of people and without any damage to them. They've been able to be, their coats have been washed, they've been um, cleaned by our staff, they've been managed by our staff and by people. So when we've looked at the cost effectiveness of them, they're actually very cost effective. So if you've got a robot that can be used by multiple people and actually has, um, you know, uh, is effective in the long term, it's not actually expensive. But when people look at it, uh, you know, upfront cost of eight and a half thousand dollars, that's where the that's where the problem occurs. I think um, it is a problem I find with robotics is that often they're developed within a university environment. They're kept in a laboratory. They don't. They're not actually commercialized, and that's where I think why they're so expensive. Often they're not actually developed in terms of a commercial product. And so a lot of our work now is trying to look at developing products um, by PhD students in terms of a commercial product that, that is cost effective. So we try and work on something that's a reasonable cost that families could buy so that they could actually take it home into a home environment um, without all the additional costs of um, pepper, for example. That's yeah. a huge, huge amount of money. Yeah. Look, and I think as well, um, it's the complexity of the robot that you're dealing with. So Paro has got five sensors that you can stimulate and it's pretty much there's, um, there's no external screen or anything. It literally looks like a little seal for our, for our audience listening. Whereas other robots, if you've got sensors and they move around, obviously then the, the cost again, it, it all adds up. And the other complexity with uh, robots that have additional complexities to them is, is in terms of maintenance mm -hmm. and in terms of, you know, if they don't work. I know we have robots here in my laboratory that sometimes we get very frustrated. We can't get them to actually work. And we, we spend, you know, hours working out why it's not actually working. And it's often to do with the software. Mm -hmm. If you're at home, you don't have, you know, you want something to just turn a switch on and actually work. And this is where often developers don't recognize that, you know, um, to make something commercially viable, it has to be very simple. 
yep. can't have all the complexities that you know a person who doesn't have the technological understanding you know that they get very frustrated and just throw it away yeah so um you know this is this is where i think our laboratory does very good work in terms of getting consumers in who don't have all of that background and getting them to say to basically tell us what do they want how do they want it to work why do they want it to look like this why do they why do they need it to have all these bells and whistles and, and often they'll, they'll they'll say well we don't want that we want you know a rather than b and and this is where it's so important whereas a, a developer has all the intellectual ability to put loads of things together but we don't often need all of those things. Yeah. So um, have you actually identified the problem and spoken to your stakeholders is the first question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's always my first question when I have often have developers call me up and say, would, would I have a look at this product? And would we test it? And my first question to them is, well, how did you develop this? Who, which consumers or, you know, who have you had involved in it? And nine times out of 10, they'll say to me, well, no, we just had this idea and we put this together. And we will usually say no because it, I will know that it will fall apart at the first time we test it or it really won't work to, to what people want it to actually to, uh, to do. Yeah. You know, and I think that adds to the problems when you talk to people that are um, that are trying to promote robotics, such as myself and, you know, other people in the industry is that you don't want a robot that someone is going to get into the office or their home and in the first opportunity it's broken and then it costs a huge amount of money to fix it. They can't get support in Australia, um, you know, and then you just go, well, it's just sitting in the cupboard. And when I hear universities or school talk about robots, they just go, I just go, this is not not helping anyone you want these these personal robots to be able to be used and easy to fix and it's not a big deal and this all I think contributes to the adoption rate of robotics in Australia which isn't very high mm -hmm. I, I totally agree there's a lot of complexities and I think the biggest one is basically that the robots we have around most of them have never been developed for commercial purposes yeah. And that's the biggest problem. And I think, you know, even, you know, talking about Pepper was never developed for, for aged care. It was developed for um, supermarkets or, um, you know, that sort of product. And I think, you know, you, you then try and reverse it and put it into a different environment. And that's not what it was ever developed for. It's... Um, yeah, it, it adds to the complexity and I think it, it makes people feel very dissatisfied with robotics and technologies. And then I'm always finding I'm having to try and convince people that this product, you know, give it a go first before saying no. Yeah, they feel like they've been duped. But I was actually um, speaking to a, um, a coach here on the robotics roadmap that I'm also involved in. And I mentioned to him, I was speaking to you because I just tell everyone I'm talking to you because I, I just think so highly of you. And um, he said to me, oh, his mother has got this, this seal and, and she just she just absolutely loves it. So I was so I was so happy to hear that. And he said, look, I just can't get the seal out of her hand. She's just, you know, and he was always scoffing about these type of robots. So um, I do think that whatever robot that we, we put out in the market, as you say, what's it intended to use? Does it work as it and is there support for people to go, let me fix this for you if there's a, there's a problem? 
Yeah, I think my message usually to people is um, there's lots of robots out there, but we should never, never imply that one robot is is right for everybody. Uh, you know that that some sometimes we we have very simplistic um, robots that. Um, some some of our consumers absolutely love and adore yeah. and then there are other people just think they're stupid mm. and it's 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 really as you know an individual response so we have a have a humanoid robot that um some people will come and they'll just they won't be frightened by it but it's just not for them whereas others will come and they'll just love it and they love what it does and they love talking to it and and so I think all of our work has shown us really that it's it's an individual response so we should never try and um, you know give a robot and just assume that that robot will actually work for everybody yeah it, it is a um it is after all a piece of technology that you're yeah. adopting somewhere and you're using yeah. it. So, you know, whether this phone or this computer, as you say, it may not, it's not all strokes for everyone. Yeah. Well, we, we all like driving different cars. Mm. And so someone likes a BMW, someone likes an Audi. And I just say the same about a robot. And so that's, you know, when I bring in a group of um, older people into our laboratory, you can just see them. They all gravitate to different robots. We have a whole lot of different robots and they just... Yeah, everyone likes different things. So how do the families and the carers react to, like, for instance, para the seal now? Because this the para has been used for quite a few years. Yes. Um, um, initially, when we started our work, I had a lot of um, negative views about um, Paro. Um, you know, they felt like it was very baby, a baby, something you give to a young child rather than an adult and they weren't too keen on it. And um, so a lot of our work initially was just about convincing people, you know, let's try it. And, you know, please let your mother or father, you know, try it. And then if they don't like it, you know, we'll remove it. And um, even staff were, you know, I don't like that. I, you know, robots, no, let's not try that. And it's been interesting watching people, listening to them and interviewing people and, um, you know, there are there are families and there are staff who have changed completely their minds and views after they've actually seen people and how how they react to it, and they've um, changed their minds that, that they like the robot now. Yeah. So, and then there are others who know they've just got their mindset on robots aren't for them. So I think yeah. it's you know, it's it's it is a problem where you have staff who aren't aren't keen on it because they can be quite destructive, particularly when people are in nursing home care. But um, I'm finding people are getting much more used to seeing robots around. And the difficulty, I think, is where nursing homes buy one robot and then they don't know how to use it um, or they don't have staff who know how to clean it and look after it. And so it sits in a cupboard and so it's seen as a very expensive item. So I do encourage you know, nursing homes to think very carefully about what they're buying. I often see CEOs of nursing homes in you know, aged care magazines saying, you know, we've brought X robot and they, you know, it's wonderful. 
and then that's the last time you ever see it. And that's a bit sad, I think, because it's a very expensive item that they've brought. I'd like to think that they might get in somebody to show them how to use it and encourage staff and actually see the benefits of using that robot. Because I think if it's not used and it sits in a cupboard, that can create quite negative com you know, comments or attitudes from staff. I agree with you. You know, um, when, when I started the business uh, nearly five and a half years ago, part of the work that I always say to people, and I'm dealing in telepresence robots, a different field, but personal robots. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I always say to them, is your company, how progressive are they? Do they, are they open to robotics? Have you got a champion in the business explaining that this piece of technology is not actually replacing a human being? It is in the place when the human being can't actually be there. So it's an augmented experience that you're using technology. And, um, you know, I remember a time that I went to um, a hospital in Melbourne and the staff also were very hostile. Um, some of the staff, they're obviously not the champion that brought me in um, about these robots now. And of course, now with, with the pandemic, um, you know, these are now available in hospitals, which you would have gone, this is never, ever going to replace a human being. I'm telling you now, I work with these robots, they just are not the sophisticated. It's, it's something that you can drive around that makes a life easier of a nursing staff not having to carry a computer so that someone, a mother can speak to their daughter or whatever the case may be. But um, I agree with you, this education process is essential when you're dealing with, with robots and people that aren't necessarily, you know, that used to the technology. Yes, yes. So, so with that in mind, do you, do you think the adoption rate in Australia is on the increase? Do you think there's going to be a time that uh, Australia could be seen as a thought leader in this space? I think compared to Europe, we're still way behind. And, and I think that's probably related to um, there's been a lot more money gone into the development of robots through the EU uh, compared to Australia. Uh, I think while we have a government that says, you know, we're they're, they're certainly supportive of technologies, you don't see that in terms of the development phases. There's very little money that's gone into the development of robotics in terms of health robotics. And so I think until we have um, you know, more investment and more, I think we'll have, we won't have the acceptance rate um, that we see in Europe. But even in Europe, I know I've been involved in a number of European projects and uh, even a number of those projects those robots still sit in laboratories of universities because they weren't ever developed as a commercial product. So um, it's something that I tend to try and champion with people that when they're uh, developing robotics, it, they really think about that end product as a product that can be developed. And it's certainly something I guess I've learned over time with working with colleagues in Japan where they really are and have developed commercial products. And I think Japan is probably um, a place where they have uh, developed a lot of commercial products for health industry. But even in Japan, there's still not a huge uptake of robotics. There are in some areas. The place that I think 
compared to Australia. Uh, Germany is doing quite well, but I think it's doing it well because of its aging population. You see a lot of robotics in all industries, so whether it's in manufacturing, etc., that are gradually going out into the health industry. So I, I'm predicting that Germany will be a leader in the field in future, and they've got some pretty amazing health robotics. So while I think that Australia has a long way to go. I'm hoping that we have a future, um, but it's not going to happen in the next year or two. Well, you, you live in the state that's, um, in my opinion, like the leader in Australia, you know, Queensland, you, you just have everything with robotics there. Like, I don't think there's a state in Australia that can compete with you. Um, it's on my bucket list to actually move to Queensland because okay. just so I can just come and revel in all of this and I can pop into your lab and come and have a look. But, you know, like the, the Queensland Artificial um, Intelligence Hub that was just created for um, for for that precise reason with Dr. Sue K managing it. And, you know, like you do really have amazing stuff going on there. Yeah. Yes, there is. So Sue has got um, an amazing group together. And I think, you know, right across the industry, um, I think it's pretty amazing. But I think it's still a way to go. Yep. No, I'm agreeing with you on that. So you're clearly a leader in your field and, um, I always ask this of everyone, do you have a mentor? Were you mentored? Like how, how did your career evolve for you? You know, I, I, I wish I had a mentor. I'm sure I'd be, be way ahead of where I am now. I don't have a specific mentor, but I do work with a number of really wonderful people in both uh, in the UK and Germany and Japan. And I think we probably all mentor each other. And in, in my lab, I have a wonderful team of people from uh, a number of different areas. And we, uh, we have a, um, a collaborative group and the, that group comes from Griffith University and other universities throughout Australia and also Hong Kong. And I think just having a wide group of people from different industries, disciplines is probably um, probably been the most beneficial because I think having different disciplines together to talk and work on things has probably been the most beneficial thing for me and also my team. Yeah. So do you um, do you get asked to be a mentor? I'm sure there are people coming to you and saying, can you can you mentor? And you go, listen, if I can fit you into a time <laughs> slot. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm always asked for PhD students galore. I seem to have PhD students more than more than I ever can have. Um, but um, yeah, I guess I guess I guess I try and I try and mentor people where I can. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I was uh, just talking to someone in the, the drone industry this morning and um, she's a highly competent human being. She's a nurse and doing aged care. And I, I was sort of mentioning to, you know, I think drones is actually quite a good space to be in for you because she's already like she's got a drone business. And I said to you, you know, if it's if it's not about the money, it's actually about being a woman in STEM because she's got the duality of, you know, she's got a nursing degree and she's into robotics and 
Um, this is still an ongoing issue for us in Australia. I think worldwide, but particularly in Australia, is that we just, um, you know, 36% of our, our graduates in STEM are women. So it's clearly we're falling behind there. But then when they actually go into industry, they drop down even further. Have you, have you got any thoughts on how to retain these women or what, what should we be doing differently? I, th um, I think it's become quite well known that women have not been doing very well in STEM, but I think the industry science itself has recognised that and has certainly tried to, from, um, from school upwards, try and encourage more women. And I think uh, certainly Griffith, I, I think, has done extremely well in terms of, I know I've done talks at school level and um, seen great advancement in terms of the number of young women who are coming into the industry. I guess it's about keeping them and helping them to stay in the industry is probably the most important. Um, but I think now, I think people like Sue Keys has um, done some amazing work in the area. And I think there are, you know, um, just worldwide, there's wonderful um, awards, et cetera, for women, women in the industry that weren't around probably five years ago. So I think these sorts of recognitions are probably helping, helping women and advance women um, yeah, probably helping to advance women in STEM that weren't around previously. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I always chat to, um, whenever I get the opportunity, I say to my audience, look, women are naturally good at humanities, like they, that's just the natural for us. But if you're equally good in STEM and in STEM subjects, um, you have to think of career advancements and you, you actually have to think about the money as well. I mean, we all do things we love, but like if it's an equal playing field and you're going, well, here you're getting and you've got more um, career opportunities, then it's an obvious take the STEM direction because you could pivot back to humanities, but at least you've got the subjects to get you into the STEM fields in the first place. Yeah, I think that's where school is so important. And um, that's why I think Griffith in particular has been doing some wonderful work in terms of trying to advance women in STEM, you know, right from the very early stages of schooling. And um, that's probably where it, um, where it's probably essential so that women do have those essential subjects in their schooling to be able to um, help them understand that uh, how essential these subjects are. Yeah, so it's the, it's the connection between universities, industry and the education system that you go, the career advisors that you, that you have actually need to be exceptionally smart people and they actually have to go and see universities and know what's available for women. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Wendy, thank you so much for your time. I know you're an exceptionally well, busy person. So if anyone wants to get hold of you, can um, have you got an email address that I can put in the link? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yep, of course, w.moyle at griffith.edu.au. But if they just um, type in Wendy Moyle, they'll find you. They will find me. Yes, <laughs> You're a superstar. <laughs> and I typed it in and I saw all these TV appearances and I went, I've got the women I need to speak to. So, so thank you so much for your time and to our listeners out there. Thank you for joining us today. And I look forward to um, another episode in two weeks' time. Great.